let your body have and do and be what it needs to be and to be okay with that and to like eat what you want and move the ways that you want and like let your body be what it wants to be and not feel sad or ashamed or insecure about it as just like try to let that be what it is that was Caleb Luna, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 134. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well. For taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that if you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers. And I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others. And we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that. But we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. 
but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. <laughs> Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Caleb Luna. Caleb is a writer, activist, teacher, performer, fat babe, and PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley, where their work broadly explores the intersections of fatness, desire, white supremacy, and colonialism from a queer of color lens. You can find their writing on Black Girl Dangerous, Everyday Feminism, and The Body is Not an Apology. In this episode, Caleb talks openly and honestly about a wide range of topics. We dig into their thoughts about sizeism and fat phobia and about the importance of expanding these issues beyond just how fat bodies are impacted to emphasize that these are issues that affect everyone. We also discuss the intersection of racism and fat phobia, and Caleb shares about how the current standards of body sizes are related to whiteness and white supremacy. We talk about some of the problems with the Love Your Body movement, why desire and attraction are way more political than they seem, and so much more. This is a rich and important conversation, and I'm so grateful that Caleb joined me for it. I hope that you enjoy learning from them as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Caleb, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. 
So I know we were just chatting about this off air, but I found you originally through Melissa Fabello, um, who's been, who was a guest a couple seasons ago, whose work I absolutely love. And when she recommended you as a guest for the show, I was thrilled to dive down the rabbit hole of your writing and work. And I'm very grateful that you're going to spend some time with us today. Yeah, thank you. That's so nice to hear. I mean, yeah, we were talking about how great Melissa is and how important her work is. And so I'm really glad that um, this connection was made and that you know, she has people in the world. Yeah, right. Well, and also in the web of connections and friends, the photo that you sent over for me to use for the show notes page. Um, oh shoot, I'm blanking on their name, but your photographer for that uh, is Shug. Yeah, Shug. Yeah, yeah. Is um, at least lightly friends with my friend Carrot Quinn, another former podcast guest. And I was like, oh, funny how like this person knows this person knows this person. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Like the queer, especially like you know, the more like subculture you get, <laughs> it's like all the fat queers know each other. Like even. Um, like nationally and internationally, it's wild how small the world is. Yeah, well, and um, I was looking through Shug's portfolio. Like, th- it's incredible photography. Oh my god, yes, I love their photography so much. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to do those photos? To do that, like photo shoot. Um. Yeah, I was really excited because I love their work so much. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, like. So part of it is that, like, I'm a Leo, so I love, like, in these uh, in specific ways, like, spotlight and attention and stuff. Um, that's really where I thrive. So on that level, like, that was great. But also, like, yeah, I, th- I just think Shug's work is so important. Um, and it's become really, like, important for me to share my body, um, not just as... Well, so for those who aren't, like, familiar with Shug's work, like, they specifically shoot... Uh, mostly fat people. Um, they have a lot of like series that are about fat people in different contexts. A lot of them are like out in nature. They live in Florida, so they have really these like really incredible photos of um, fat folks like in these really beautiful natural settings. Um, they also have a bedroom series, which is what they like shot me for, um, which is just like fat queers in their bedrooms in like whatever kind of like outfit or states of undress that. Um, you might be comfortable with. And so I, I did like a mostly nude photo shoot with them in this way that was like really lovely. And I don't know, like I just think that fat bodies are so like, we, we just are never seen and especially like not nude, um, naked and especially not in naked contexts that aren't sexual. Right. Like I love, like, I think it's yeah. really important to like, see the beauty and eroticism and sexiness of fat bodies, like, absolutely. But I also think it's really important to just see fat bodies as, like, bodies, as, like, natural and normal and just, like, doing different things and sort of destigmatize the ways that our bodies look in these different positions. Um, so it's really cool to see my to see my body in these different ways that I don't ever even get to see them. Like we did this one really incredible photograph where I'm like, I think one of my favorites is like, I have this like big comfortable chair and I'm like laying across it so that my belly is like sitting um, like in the seat portion of the chair. And you can just like kind of see um, like the folds and the layers and like how this like skin is like laying. And it's just like so incredible to see my body from that perspective. Like, yeah, it's not a, it's not like 
a vantage point I get to see Mm -hmm. (laughs) ever, like not on my own body and not on other fat bodies. Yeah. Sort of the, the beauty of seeing yourself reflected back through the eyes of an artist who gets it and is like maybe from the same community. Yeah. I can, I can see where something in that would feel really good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put a link to their work too in the show notes um, because I agree that it is beautiful and important. So you mentioned being a Leo and liking the spotlight, (laughs) um, which is actually a fun place maybe to start because in your bio, along with being a writer, activist, teacher, PhD student, you mentioned being a performer. Um, But I would love to know like more, what does that mean? Like more about that? What kind of performance? Tell me everything. Yeah, um, the reason like I say performer because it's intentionally vague and I do different things that, I mean, I've done like stage, stage work on it and not like, and part of like why I even pursued a a PhD in performance studies is through doing this like collaborative play with about six friends who were like all these fat femme identified people in Austin. And we got together and we like wrote this play called fat the play that was just kind of synthesizing all of our different writings about these different topics around fatness that we wanted to explore. And it's such a funny story because like I had so much hesitation and anxiety about like participating and like, like I was like, I don't have any like stage training. I don't have any like formal, yeah, like formal experience with this. Like I was just terrified of like my capacity to do it and like be, on stage and it ended up like being really well received and that really changed my it made me question a lot about like my own kind of self-disciplining around not one not thinking that like I should be on the stage that my body was worth being on the stage that people like realizing how much like I had internalized that like people didn't want to look at my body that like people shouldn't look at shouldn't want to look at my body like I should just kind of like keep myself hidden away in these like safer zones. And that's only, that was like in 2000, I want to say 14. Um, And since then I've like kind of explored different types of performance, like mostly through either like performance art, doing poetry readings. um, And I've also like dabbled a little bit with burlesque and really just things to like push the conversation kind of expose my body, like normalize my body and like get others to see what I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's been your favorite thing about um, even the small experience with burlesque? I don't know if this is like a weird answer to the question, but um, I think like what has really like my first time trying it, it was in um, a friend of mine at my department like hosts these her girlfriend hosts these like sort of amateur or like new works burlesque shows in their house so and it's like a space to give people an opportunity to try new things intentionally so i that's where i like first tried burlesque and i think what was fun about that was that my body just looks so different from everyone else's who performed that night there was one other fat person in the lineup who was my really close friend who's white. But other than that, like everybody else was, was really thin. Um, I think there was like another one other person of color. So to be like the only fat person of color 
and also one of the only fat and one of the only performers of color um, and really like disrupt that space and just kind of insert myself into that space was really fun and like was well received and really necessary. So I think that is probably like my favorite thing. Yeah. That's such a cool concept. What you were saying about the friend that about hosting something where people can try new fit. Like I, I love that idea of being the one to create like safe, good feeling spaces for people to try things that they're new at. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so, it's so cool. And so important. Like I want to do that. That sounds, that sounds yeah. awesome. Um, can you give me a quick crash course or just description in what you're studying in your PhD program? If studying is even the right word to use. <laughs> sure. Um, yes, I'm doing performance studies, which performance studies is like, it's not like super new, but it's not, um, really well, it's still kind of obscure in the academy and a lot of people aren't familiar with what it does as a discipline. And I get a lot of like, Oh, so you're an actor or like those kinds of things. Whenever people hear them in performance studies. And part of that is because like performance studies is so many things. Um, but it's really concerned with, it's like the field is really concerned with bodies and behaviors and like space. Right. And that, so that is a huge opening. So there's lots of different kinds of, um, projects. Mine is um, how bodies become constituted and the ways that we use language and discourse to do that. Um, and part of my intention there is to, because I, and I do, like, I talk about fat bodies specifically, um, but I also don't want to, I want to be really intentional about not, not sort of making fat phobia, uh, like, fat phobia is a specific oppression that has its own specific nuances and experiences and reasons and motivations and all that and I think that's really important to explore but my my framework is that this consumption this compulsion to categorize bodies in the first place right by like race or gender or nationality or sexuality or body size or ability status right like the reason that we have these categories is to place them into hierarchies and to sort of create like smaller communities of separation so that we for the purposes of facilitating conflict I would say mm -hmm. so really my I'm interested in like exposing that and using fatness as a way to to expose those things and how these things are all related and I think that they're all um you know they can be traced back to legacies of colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy Right. And just all these like structures and systems of domination that are trying to um, oppress particular people at the and like uplift others. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with my work. So this I mean, this might be a, like, a really simple, silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So in your like in your program in the work that you're doing like what is the form that this work takes like is it always like the is it just like the written dissertation format like i'm curious as you start to dig into these things like what you create from it does that make sense yeah um that's a great question um so yeah it's mostly writing um as far as school goes and i've looked at like um, and so I've looked at fatness in like a lot of different contexts for, through my coursework um, and seminars. There's also in my program, which is common for performance studies programs, there's a, um, a practice component. So we had to develop performance pieces 
to perform in front of our faculty and staff, our friends and colleagues, and then also like anyone in the community that we wanted to invite. And so I did that last spring. And at that point, my work was, and like, I still am interested in sexuality and sex. um, But at that point, that was like a bigger focus, (laughs) I would say. So yeah, I developed two um, pieces for that. One of them was a burlesque piece. Or I just like decided to use the opportunity to to try to try my hands at burlesque. And another piece dealt with fatness and and visibility and sexuality. Yeah, that's so it's so interesting to hear about the different forms that worked. I mean, I've never gotten a PhD. And so I don't really know anything (laughs) about it. But just to hear like, kind of what comes out of doing studies of these, because I could imagine you could take it in a lot of different directions. So yeah, that's super interesting. Um, So circling back a little bit, um, I know you mentioned fat phobia. And you know, when we were chatting um, by email earlier in the week about things that you were passionate about and things you wanted to discuss, fat phobia and sizeism are two things that you mentioned. And um, I'm always happy to have these topics discussed on the show. Um, you know, when Melissa Fabella was on, we talked about it a little bit. Um, same with Virgie Tovar, Melissa Toller. But in case mm-hmm. someone listening isn't familiar with those terms, sizeism and fat phobia, can you just explain what you mean when you use those words before we start talking about it? Sure. Um, so sizeism is basically discriminating against somebody because of their body size. Um, and it's something that both fat people and thin people experience. Um, I think like a really easy example of this would be is like going to the doctor and like a fat person is assumed to like already be unhealthy um, and to already like need to exercise and lose weight and like be prescribed these normative ideas of be prescribed these activities um, as with the assumption that they aren't already doing those things um, or that there isn't something else happening. And on the other end of that, you know, thin people might be like, especially like very thin people might be um, cautioned around like being too too thin and then not being able to like have, the, like their bodies might be pathologized in, the, in its own way. Mm-hmm. And fat phobias is specifically like a fear of fatness um, and the, the sort of discrimination and active, I would say the active discrimination but also avoidance of fatness and fat people and another thing that I really want to emphasize is that these things um that fat phobia doesn't just impact fat people and it impacts even thin people into trying to like pressure thin folks into monitoring their bodies so that they don't become fat Mm -hmm. um in ways that become really like intensely hostile and unhealthy um and like really have really, really detrimental impacts, um, on so many registers. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a really good point. This idea of expanding these issues beyond how fat bodies are impacted, even if, you know, that should be centered. Cause I like the point that you're making that it does affect everyone. And oftentimes in mm-hmm. subconscious ways that maybe we wouldn't even realize, like that's so much of what diet culture is, right. That it like has its hooks in everyone. Even if maybe you think that it doesn't like the fear of fatness plays a role in so many decisions that people make. Yeah. And so like, it's easy or like whenever, for example, whenever somebody like somebody might describe that phobia as like, a fat person walking down the street and a thin person like yelling epithets or slurs or 
or just harassing them, which like happens absolutely. Um, and is definitely like one manifestation of fat phobia that's really like awful and violent. But there's other there's others that I think are are equally hostile and and unhealthy and violent. I'm like so like something that I've thought a lot about is Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, mm-hmm. which like freaks me out so much because well for those of you like if people aren't familiar with this this is like a nationwide um it's sort of like michelle obama's like mission when she was in the white house was to target childhood obesity specifically um and so there's been a lot of through through the let's move campaign there's been so many changes specifically in like getting sodas out of schools like regulating lunches and all these things that like I think objectively are like positive steps, um, right? Like having healthier options for children in schools to eat is like, nobody's like arguing against that. Right. But, and, and on the let's move campaign website, um, it says like our mission is to eradicate childhood obesity within a generation. And that's when it becomes complicated for me because eradicating childhood obesity and like producing a healthy population are two very different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think in the, as part of this uh, project, it's become so normalized for calories to be listed everywhere on every restaurant menu, everywhere you go, it's going to tell you how many calories there are. Right. And there's going to like have even like McDonald's now has like healthy alternatives or like, you know, most fast food places that get like blamed for producing fat bodies have like healthy alternatives. Um, on the menu. And this is something that like, this is one way that I would just argue that this impacts everybody. It's just like forcing us to think about how many calories we're, we're ingesting, but specifically like for the purpose of maintenance, right? Because it's not just like, oh, just so you know, this is how many calories this are these are. This is like, it's presenting information so that you can then make the a decision. Um, and the presumed decision is that you want to intake as few calories as possible so that you don't get fat Mm -hmm. right because like that's like the dominant narrative when actually bodies work so differently and so varied and like the relationship between like caloric intake and body size is is so much more complicated than we're like led to believe um but this is one way that i feel like it's just like the possibility of fatness is just like kept at the forefront of everybody's minds and that's like really really intense way Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so much good stuff in in what you just said, and that it's like more complicated than people, I think, want to admit, like this prevailing narrative of it being a linear thing, like do X, Y, and Z, and then you will have like this body that we've decided is like healthy and desirable. And Mm -hmm. that like, even that, like, I think it would be one thing, not to say it would be a good thing, but it would be one thing if that even worked. Right. But like it ignores that body diversity is a real thing and that two people can eat the exact same amounts of the exact same things and exercise the exact, you know, whatever we think leads to, you know, whatever body change and have totally different bodies at the end of that. And it's like, I feel like that is left out of these conversations a lot is even just like the myth of the assumption that like, you know, this thing leads to this other thing. Like that's not the case. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like definitely a missing part of that, but you're right. I mean, that it keeps that narrative focused in, you know, fear of fatness and that obviously that fear is there for a reason. 
Yeah, and it also, like, it it upholds these narratives that, like, if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, if we make the right decisions, like, we'll be rewarded in this one specific way. And that people who are fat are making that choice, which, like, maybe is true. But then it becomes, like, because we aren't making these lifestyle changes that, like, supposedly can lead to a thinner body, then, like, our discrimination is our fault. So, it like, I... I I think that it's intentional to not keep this information out there so that a, it will keep thin people like focused on, on like not being fat. It keeps thin people like feeling special for being thin. Um, and then it, it keeps fat phobia in this realm of like, we are fat people are bringing it upon themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different tactics being used here to solidify this, the status and to keep, this culture of us all like focused and anxious about our bodies so that and and oppressing fat people and i think another part of it that is really important is like how important it is for capitalism yeah right like look at who i mean this is like a multi-billion dollar industry right and like dieting like look at who benefits if we uh, maintain fat phobia yeah like it's so wild to me like how how intensely unhappy with our bodies, like so many people are, um, and so many, and these ways that are just like unnecessary and arbitrary. Um, but also that like cut across so many different body types, right? Like, I think like an example of this is like growing up as a fat person, like the idea that like anybody could be too thin or that like thinness in some capacity, specifically like around like men and masculinity and attractiveness like that was just like something that never occurred to me (laughs) until like I was already an adult and then like I had thin friends who were like anxious or insecure about like being too thin and that making them unattractive and I was like wow like this is it's just intense how many different ways (laughs) like you like there have been anxieties produced for us to be unhappy with our bodies Mm -hmm. you know Mm-hmm. Right. That it's like, n- no matter what, here here's yeah. an anxiety that we will give you so that we can sell you something to yeah. like fix that. Because it's not just like, don't be fat. It's like, don't be fat, have clear skin, like have like this much of a uh, body hair only in these places. Um, right. Like get your eyebrows done, get your nether regions waxed mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like. Um, and it's like, if you're like, maybe you're thin, but maybe your like arms aren't toned enough, or maybe they're like too small, or maybe like your calves are weird, you know, and then, and then we can just like dissect all these different types of like all these different body parts, um, to be unhappy about. And it's like, for what reason <laughs> to whose end is it serving for us to be unhappy about our bodies? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> Well, I feel like, I mean, it's like, this is, I don't know, like not real laughter. It's like angry laughter. It's like, you start to think about these things and it's like, oh my God, I just burn it all down. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And I mean, something else too, that I know that you've written and talked about too, is the intersection of fat phobia and racism, right? Like the idea about how the standards of body sizes are related to whiteness and white supremacy. And I'd love for you to share some more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that like something that a lot of people don't know is that 
or so like we are indoctrinated into this understanding of our bodies based on the BMI. Um, and because it's so ubiquitous, there's like, I think an assumption that it's like sound science or something, or that like, it's like really thoroughly tested and like evidence-based. And it's just like, absolutely not. It's like this arbitrary ranking system that was so like beyond just like being arbitrary and like not having any real evidence-based proof to like incorporate body size and health status it was developed by a belgian i want to say like astronomer or something like some kind of scientist to really just to get a, um, a range of body sizes for like the this like one population and this population was all white men. <laughs> it was like all these like white European men who had like this one specific body type. And then that was exported throughout the world. So this understanding of like the sort of proportions that our bodies are supposed to have is like from like the very first step is about whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's like, what, like, let's measure our bodies against these white men. And, like, the BMI is getting, um, like, more and more problematized. And, like, we're seeing how it doesn't apply to, like, women as well. It doesn't apply to people of color as well. Um, But it's still so ubiquitous. And so I think that's one way that, like, you know, it's really easy to point at, like, white beauty standards and think about, like, blonde hair and blue eyes. And, like, those things are important for sure. But, you know, part of white beauty standards are also you know, being this kind of proportion that um, is about a measurement of whiteness. It's also about, like, having body hair patterns that align with whiteness. So either, like, not having too much, like, quote-unquote, too much hair and not having no hair. But it's, like, having, like, the right amount of body hair. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking, like, mostly for men. (laughs) Because, like, obviously for women, it's the same thing applies, but the standards are different, where women are, like, never supposed to have any kind of body hair. Um, And then, like, if they do have body hair, then they're, like, masculinized. Um, And that is also, like, linked to racialization because, like, certain racial populations just, like, have more body hair no matter what the gender. So these are, this is one way that, like, I think that whiteness is so, again, like, ubiquitous. And, like, everything we're measuring ourselves against is about these white ideals of like what a body should look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you brought up the body hair thing just because I think that's, it's something that I think is easy to overlook and it can potentially seem like a small thing, but it's one really clear example of, yeah, the way we like police our own bodies and other people's bodies and what's attractive and what's not and what's acceptable and what's not and to take a pause and be like, where does that even come from? Right. And to trace that mm-hmm. back and everything that you just explained like is such a clear I think necessary look at that yeah thank you yeah it's just like something I see a lot like part of or like a lot of the conversation that I've been tapped into is like racism and like the queer dating communities right and like the ways that people of color are like less are seen as less viable romantic partners in queer communities and so how many white folks are only interested in other white folks and how this like is one way that that racism manifests in the queer community, which is true and important, um, absolutely. But the conversation then is never like, or rather the response to that is to then like find men of color attractive, but men of color who are like still really tall and like have a specific, specific type of body 
and like specific body hair patterns and like all these other things that are also markers of whiteness. And then they're just like painted like black or brown. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. like, that's not actually like diversifying our erotic interests or tastes. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And this actually was one of the topics that I was most um, interested in talking with you about because I've recently, I mean, it's embarrassing to say that I'm recently starting to think about this more critically. I guess that just like shows the like lens of whiteness, but this idea of the politics of desirability. And because I think someone's knee jerk response to what you just said, it's very easy to say like, oh, well, like I'm just attracted to who I'm attracted to right? Like I can't Mm -hmm. control that. It's just like my attraction. That's just natural. And that I don't think that that's actually accurate. And this idea of like the politics of desirability is something that I would love to, to talk about. And maybe in order to get into that conversation, um, like you can explain sort of what that means or how desire is political a little bit. Yeah. And it's such a, like, loaded complicated conversation that I think people find very challenging because it's so personal and so intimate um and like I think that the way that desire is narrated in our culture is so much about like an internal process that is separate from like external forces right and that we're just like these neutral bodies responding to other neutral bodies but like that's it's more complicated than that but like that's a really and it's very like intimate um to to challenge that and like and I've had my own struggles with it as much as like I have wanted to challenge my own desires sometimes they have felt so sedimented that like there was nothing I could do Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't know if I if I um, feel the same way now. But what? But to think about the politics of desirability um, broadly is just like thinking about like who we're attracted to and who we're interested in romantically and like what our values are for romantic companionship um, and sex partners. Um, and if we are again like how white supremacy and fat phobia and misogyny and ableism um, and transmisogyny are impacting these things, right? Like, such that people who... It becomes important because I think specifically in, like, in my experience in queer of color spaces that have, like, been maybe on the surface, try, like, wanting to be open or, like, challenge those things, you know, and you walk in and it's still, like... Still the people who fit white supremacist beauty standards are the ones that are being the ones pursued. So it's still the, like the tall ones, the thin ones, the like stylish ones, the wealthy ones, the ones with like maybe no physical disabilities or, or who are light skinned or like, you know, don't have like back hair or don't have like acne scars. And so like this feels, so what, what I've written about too is how, when this becomes the ways that we organize our communities around like who we sexually desire but our sexual desires are rooted in white supremacy then like it becomes a way to replicate white supremacy in our social circles right and not just in that like we surround ourselves with or like we might be compelled to surround ourselves with like normative people or people who have normative bodies and like fit all the markers of normative attractiveness but it also means that people who don't fit those standards become isolated and ignored and excluded 
And like, I feel like that's something I've experienced a lot in really painful ways. And so that's like the, the flip side of the politics of desire, where it's not just like, it's not just impacting you and the person you're attracted to, but the ways that our romantic lives are so enmeshed and our personal lives um, and our political lives and our social lives, it becomes really isolating to not be somebody who has um, that kind of ca- that kind of sexual capital in a place where, like, if all my close friends, like people who I rely on for like emotional support, like don't have the space for me anymore because they like they have these like serious relationships, and it's like, well, that's fine. Like, so it becomes a question of like, what do we do in that moment when like I if I felt like I haven't had access to the same kind of romantic partnership that that my friends have, and then my friends have less space to give me because they're in romantic partnerships, um, like that becomes a really complicated thing to navigate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this this idea that we're. I think told from so many different messaging places over, I mean, from like basically the youngest possible age of like what is desirable and what is attractive. And I I love that you use the phrase sexual capital, like what that is, like those messages come at us like so hard from so many different places that like to even parse out like, why do I desire what I desire is like, have I been told that that's the right thing to desire? And then sort of looking at like the ways that we're socialized to treat anyone who doesn't fit that like mm-hmm, particular mm-hmm. like box of desirability. Like I, I think that there's something there too, that like it is more of a social construct, I think than we're often comfortable admitting. Cause like you said, there is obviously a very personal, intimate internal experience of desire, especially when we're talking about romance and sex, but to actually be able to take a moment and be like, well, sure. But also like, this is a social contract thing as well. Mm-hmm. And to look at like, how are we collectively treating people that for whatever reason we have decided do not have these desirable characteristics that are essentially arbitrary. Yeah. And like, are they not worthy of like company now, <laughs> you know, or like politeness or yeah. I've just like, there's been so many situations where like, it's been obvious to me that like my experience in the world is, is not being considered because of my sexual capital. And I'm like, well, that's not like, like, do I still not deserve good customer service? then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, or like, do I still not deserve this job or like, you know, healthcare <laughs> um, because like, you don't want to sleep with me. Interesting. Yeah. And the ways in which it's easy to think that desire just occupies its own box, but nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Like, it's not just white privilege or able-bodied privilege, but this idea of like pretty privilege is very real also. Right. And like how much like those things are like in some ways synonymous. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like they're I was going to say, like, I had, like, this morning I, like, went out and did errands. And I, like, had a bizarrely positive experience <laughs> for me. And it was just, like, such a trip, like, how nice and friendly people were. And, like, not only was that weird, but also feeling like it was a positive experience because these people, like, were attracted to me or, like, were interested in me is, like, such... is 
yeah, it's just like something that this like very strange experience that I had this morning. Um, where I could tell that like, you know, I went to, I love office supplies. So <laughs> I went to Staples and I just like got really good customer service and like, I was able to, like, I, I could tell that, like, this person, like, thought I was cute, and, like, that's why they were, like, offering to help me, um, right, and, like, that when I went to, and then I went to, like, fill my prescriptions, and, like, another, like, situation there where this, like, pharmacist was, like, overly, like, helpful to me, and I'm, like, this is never, like, people have never tried to help me this much, and, yeah, so it's, like, it provoked, like, a lot of reflection on my part about, like, what's changed, like, that I'm, like, having a different experience in the world now when I felt like I've always been the same person. Like, I've always, like, I wasn't, like, dressed particularly cute or anything, you know? So it was, like, a weird shift in experience that I had Mm -hmm. that, like, I think relates was, like, evidence to me on the other end of, like, what it, what the experience is, even in these, like, day-to-day tasks of, like, refilling the prescription when you are or you aren't, desired or attractive mm-hmm. yeah I, I'm interested in this too from the lens of like sort of personal introspection and interrogation and just like the importance of asking ourselves hard questions about this kind of stuff and I mean I don't even know that I have like a good blueprint of what that looks like mm-hmm. but even is there anything in there like questions that you have asked yourself about this like I remember I can't remember exactly which piece it was piece of writing of yours but you posed a question that I uh, like underscored and thought was really interesting you said how can I decolonize my desire I thought that's an interesting question that I've never really heard posed before so either you you know if you want to talk about that specifically or just questions in general that you have found helpful in thinking about this or sort of like questioning and interrogating these topics like for yourself Yeah, so, like, as far as, like, asking yourselves kind of questions to interrogate your own desires, yeah, I think, like, just being, like, why am I attracted to this person? Like, what is, and, like, why am I not attracted to this person also are really important questions with, like, really complicated answers that might surprise you. You know, like, I think, especially, like, my journey has been a lot about, like, feeling or trying to, like, undo or challenge an affinity for whiteness and thinness and like white thinness especially um in my attractions and part of that journey has been about like looking at white people I find attractive and being like do I actually find this person attractive or like what what is it and like usually I found that like I'm more attracted to like maybe their status or like what they represent Mm -hmm. rather than like, yeah. Or like even the benefits of like the proximity to whiteness and yeah. 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 Like I, I mean, I had this, like I hooked up with this guy who like had a six pack and I was like, it was such an interesting experience for me because like, I wasn't actually that attracted to him, but like I was like very into the idea that he was into me. Yes. You know? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I, I was it. like, that's like silly. <laughs> but I mean, it makes so much sense. Like, what is it? What good things does it say about me? And how does it make my ego feel good? And what benefits can I get? Because this person has chosen me, which therefore means that I'm special and gives me whatever stamp of approval and like bleed over privileges comes from their status. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It's very real. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so like, so intense. And like, yeah, it's weird too. Like I find the more that I like think about like men and masculinity, the less I'm like attracted to them. 
And I'm like, why do I like, yeah, I think especially like as part of my like thought thinking, I've like kind of really been sitting with like how much time it takes to produce like a really like toned and muscular body. Like sometimes like that's just how bodies are or like sometimes, you know, there's like an activity that people like to do that just produces these types of bodies. And like, that feels like really different to me. And those things are like, you know, like really neutral embodiments. But like, I think especially in queer male communities, there's such an, um, and part of gym culture is like honing in on specific bodies and like putting in all this work to like cultivate them, to get, to make them look uh, particular ways. And that like, really disturbs me the more I think about it particularly like or I guess mostly because I'm like what what are you trying to do so that like what are you trying to get from having a body that looks this way you know because like you don't need like really big muscles to be strong (laughs) you know like a lot of the the features that have been deemed attractive have been particularly around like muscularity I feel like there's, like, some sort of, like, under understanding that, like, those bodies are, like, really strong and have, like, big capacities that other bodies don't. But the reality is that, like, bodies can have, can be really strong and have those capacities without necessarily, like, having huge pecs or, like, a washboard stomach or, like, really big, like, biceps, you know? Like, mm-hmm. those things are really intentional. Like, you really have to, like, put lots and lots of hours, lots and lots of hours into the gym to produce those things that and it's different than just like you know I just really love going for a run to clear my mind you know or like a day laborer <laughs> you know and so like I just like happen to like have toned arms because I use them a lot or whatever you know like there are different relationships to bodies and different ways that bodies are produced but like as I'm thinking through this and like the more and more I see people who like have obviously spent a lot of time on their body. I'm like, this feels gross. And like, that's not like, that's an unattractive quality to me. Right. Yeah. I think something that just came up for me when you were talking too is this, I mean, and everyone can do what they want with their bodies. Right. (laughs) I'm certainly not here to tell anybody what to do. Um, But it's like putting an investment in the like looking a certain way or meeting certain standards. Like, I mean, I would say we do that because of the privileges that we get from it, but then doing that also upholds these oppressive systems. And so it's like, I don't know. There's like something really resonant in what you're saying. That's like, doesn't mean don't do it. Like, of course it makes sense why people do it because there's huge benefits to doing it. Right. And, and also to acknowledge like, Oh, I'm going to choose to do this. I mean, I think the same thing is true with what you're talking about before about like body hair. And I've had this conversation with, you know, female friends who have decided to stop shaving or to start, you know, to anything in that regard that it's like, it's not like a shaming thing for people who do decide to get Brazilian waxes or to do whatever, but it's like, again, worth interrogating. Why am I upholding these standards of femininity? And like, how do I benefit from doing that? And just like, even just making the, even if the conscious decision winds up being, I'm still going to do this for whatever reason, like to just look at the fact that like putting time and energy into that, like is upholding those systems. Yeah. And even like being like, well, it makes me feel good to do this. Like that's, a perfectly like valid yeah. reason. 
um, to do something, but like, you know, questioning why. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, like, you know, we all engage with our bodies and with norms and ways that make our lives easier. Like I'm, I brush my teeth every day. <laughs> I usually like make, put some effort into like fixing my hair you know, like right now I'm experimenting with not wearing deodorant, but like usually like I would wear deodorant because like it produces an easier time for mm-hmm, me in the world, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? And like, these are like really like common, like daily things that a lot of people do without realizing that these are like engagements with our bodies and modifications of our bodies that we're all making for like our own purposes that are like all fine and valid. And like, if we do or we don't, like whatever. But yeah, like we're all making these choices on different scales and in different ways mm-hmm. every day. And that goes back to like even the f- the phrasing from um, earlier in the conversation about this idea of like the politics of desirability that to your point that it's it's fine. Everyone, you know, do what they want with their own bodies, that type of thing. And also like we can't separate the fact that these aren't just exclusively personal decisions that exist in a vacuum. Yeah. Like that they like we are all part of like a larger society. So it's like, there are implications. And I think it's always just like worth looking at, like, why do I do what I do? This, this came up at, um, a live event for the podcast some months ago. Um, it's like last fall actually. And we, we were actually talking about the body hair thing and this idea of, um, like would I get a Brazilian wax if I lived alone on a desert Island? I mean, maybe somebody would, but like, I don't know that that would have ever occurred to me as like an activity to do like for funsies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so it's like even thinking that it's like what would be true without some of the social contracts. And of course, like we don't live alone on desert islands, but it's just interesting to like even ask myself those questions like, huh, what do I do? Because I actually want to do it or because I think it'll be well received. And like there's just like worth digging into, I think. Yeah. Um, so sort of, I guess like a tangential pivot point from this, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the power of treating friends like we're dating them or like treating friends like lovers, or at least just like looking at sort of the hierarchy of relationships and how much, like you said, like how much time and attention is put onto romantic partners. And I know Mm -hmm. that's something that you have thought about and wrote about as well, about how doing that, like treating friends as lovers can also be like a, a political act. Right. And I'd love to hear your current feelings on that or maybe like on romantic love in general, since it's something that lightly came up earlier in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, no big deal. Huge, to- huge topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were talking earlier, like before the recording about um, how my relationship to a lot of these writings have changed with experience. And that's one of them too. Or that's one of the big ones that like has certainly, um, my feelings have evolved. Yeah. I mean, even, and I, I love that when people's feelings evolve on things and they're willing to be honest about that. So even just to hear like, Hey, I used to think X, Y, or Z and like it's evolved in this other way. Um, anything that you want to share um, about that, I'd be really interested in. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I love, I love this idea of treating my friends like lovers in the, I, in the sense of yeah, doing the things that I would withhold for a lover for them. Like, being really generous and affectionate and caring and all these things and, and working to disrupt those hierarchies. Right. And I think, but, and that's also something that, or another, like a related writing was a piece that I published on the body's not an apology called romantic love is killing us. Um, (laughs) 
and <laughs> not not dramatic i like it i'm in, I'm into it yeah <laughs> you know uh, performance studies what <laughs> yeah i love you know going in for the um yeah um so there's so in that i talk about like you know economies of care and like who we decide to distribute our care to in a similar way of like and we like make these decisions and these disbursements based on like our uh, relationship affiliation with people. Um, and I've gotten pushback on that around, I think a lot from women who like feel particularly expected to be generous with their own emotional labor anyway, mm-hmm. um, with everyone, which I think is like, yeah, so real. And the, and it's, I think, um, secondly from like disabled folks who are, who have, you know, mentioned how, everybody has different like energy and resource levels. And so like an equitable or perhaps like expecting those things from everyone all the time is like really unsustainable and not, not realistic and ableist. Um, and so I think those are like really two, two really important um, like caveats to my thinking around this. But, and with that said, like I really love like practicing this kind of relationship to status that, blurs the lines between romance and friendship and i think because those lines are already blurry but like more it's about like disrupting the hierarchies of like who can like who's entitled to these these parts of me or like who am i willing to share them with Mm -hmm. and on the other hand like it can be really confusing (laughs) i've had a lot of like experiences since publishing that article where i'm like okay this is like now i can't tell if we're just like flirting because we're friendly or if we're flirting because there's something here. <laughs> um, so it gets kind of dangerous for me in that, in that avenue, at least. Um, and I've had, like, you know, people, like, question, like, if I'm dating, what am I really close friends? Just because I, like, talk about how much, like, how in love I am with them all the time. And I'm like, yeah, we're, like, super in love. But, like, we're not dating. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And, like, that's just, like, that makes sense to me, you know, like being so in love with so many of my friends and like it not being romantic or needing to be romantic, um, which is also interesting because like so much of my, or a lot of my experience has been about like expecting like a romantic relation out of, as like the natural conclusion to these dynamics, mm-hmm. which has caused a lot of harm to a lot of people and like myself included and so like this it's something that i'm like yeah another thing that i've like grappled with around this yeah i i really like the idea of purposefully disrupting the hierarchy especially because that assumes of even assumes like the step of even acknowledging the hierarchy like we put Mm -hmm. romance and the like you know, monogamous, long-term romantic relationship on such an unbelievable cultural, like, rom-com pedestal, right? In Mm -hmm. ways that I think are often not even, again, like, not interrogated. And to just be like, wait, hang on, like, why is this the be-all, end-all relationship? And not to say those relationships can't be wonderful or that romance isn't important or any of these things. Um, But, like, looking at how much we save, like you said, just for that relationship. And then Mm -hmm. is that even, like 
benefiting us to do that. This idea of like, I, that was an intentional choice that I made going into this year of like dating my friends. And again, like, I don't mean that in a romantic context, but like, okay, let's look at all of the energy that I would put into, you know, going on a date. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, both in terms of like, confidence level and how I look and how I plan out what we're going to do and like just how present I am there and how I'm not like scrolling through my phone or any of those things like okay well I can do all of those things and should do all of those things with these people that I like love even if it's not going to result in like romance and sex you know at the end and it's like honestly not surprisingly has revolutionized my friendships and they have become like so much more fulfilling to be like yeah I love my husband for sure and also these relationships are equally important and like that even feels like even saying that I'm like ooh you know like that that feels like sort of taboo to even be like I care about my friends as much as I care about my partner you know yeah and it's like wild how like why is that challenging but it is like even as I say it I'm like ooh like that's yeah. something that's I don't know I mean obviously I, I I'm I I know that you get what I'm saying yeah I think again it's like another kind of thing that is trying to you know, keep us separated and keep us not looking out for each other and, like, keep us in these really, like, isolated and individualist relations so that we can, so that we can't, like, extend our, like, we have the capacity to, like, care about all those things, right? But it's, I think, like, the potential for what happens when we do is really threatening. Mm -hmm. And that is why... There's so much work to separate to keep those things um, separate and like be like only focus on this one person and like don't give a fuck about anybody else because like how are we going to support each other when that when we have that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, and I also think it ignores how much like couple privilege is a very real thing. Oh my god, yeah. That and that it's like we again, it's like so. I mean, I guess that's a privilege, it's like so baked into culture that it's easy if you are a benefit, like someone who's a beneficiary of it, like to not see it. But yeah, that's like people treat you differently when you're part of a couple, and I think like that's very real, like especially as a woman in a partnership with like a male, like that there's so much privilege there for me, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, again, it has its own hardships. Like I had, I talked to a friend who was like a woman who married a man and we were just like hatching up and she was like, she was just talking about her own difficulty in building relationships because she felt like people weren't open to it or that like people weren't trusting her or like with the knowledge that she was married, like people assumed she had less capacity for friendship. Interesting. Which was like a really interesting perspective that I, that I I can imagine is real, Mm -hmm. you know, that like, that that is its own struggle. Yeah. It's like the flip side of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. There's so much, so much to dig into. <laughs> yeah. Um, so pivoting again a little bit, and I know that you mentioned that since, you know, that's some of the pieces and stuff that you've written that your thoughts have evolved and changed. And th- so that's awesome if what I'm about to bring up, like, doesn't feel resonant anymore. But you, something else that you wrote about that really caught my attention um, was when you were writing about being a fat positive activist who doesn't love your body. And I would thought that that was a very honest thing to say, whether that still feels true or not. The fact that it was true and that you were admitting that felt powerful. And I would love to hear um, just like anything in that space that you want to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's like part of the reason why I wanted to talk about that is because it's such a day-to-day struggle, <laughs> you know, and it's, I, I think for everyone, um, and I don't think that it's a destination, you know, or like, I don't think it's fair to place that as a destination because we're still like experiencing every day new traumas and new hardships that are going to, you know, change our relationship to whatever. Mm-hmm. And with that said, like, yeah, I don't, I, I think that I'm still in like a similar place where like, I still have, you know, good days and bad days uh, or whatever, like, you know, days where confidence comes a lot easier and like days where I just feel like really ugly and I don't know if that's ever going to, like, stabilize, you know? But I think that, like, I would say, yeah, I'm still, like, in this, like, really complicated relationship with my body. But I think it is, like, what something that is helping a lot is, like, realizing that, like, I think for a long time, and part of it was, like, my own way of coping with, like, fat, with fat phobia was to, like, just completely like shut myself off from thinking about my body at all mm-hmm. and like being in relationship to my body. Um, and as I become more comfortable, like with my body and in my body um, and understand that like I'm in relationship with my body. What I mean by that is that like my body is not just this like thing that like is responding and the, or that like I respond to but it's a thing that like I can take care of and that I can like change behaviors that don't feel good and incorporate practices that do, you know, and that is like, I think so much that helps so much on that journey of like, just like reclaiming that kind of agency of like, I'm going to like try to get some sleep because like, I know that like my body feels better when it, is well rested and I'm going to like eat when I'm hungry because I know that I'm going to be really cranky if not, you know, or like, yeah. And I feel kind of like silly saying these things because like I have these like insecurities that like, this is something that everybody's aware of. And I just like am late to the party, (laughs) but it's been that like, I think has been the biggest shift in that where I can like, am more in tune with what I can do to feel better in my body. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful. And I like, I also feel like a lot of it was fat phobia that like made me scared to like interrogate those things and investigate those things because I like placed so much blame on myself for like how my body was instead of like stopping to think about like how I could interact with it in a more mutually like loving and respectful and caring way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that the simplicity of the things that you're saying, like when you said, oh, maybe this like sounds silly and other people already know this, or, I mean, I think maybe for some folks, but I also think that it is a really powerful thing to give yourself permission to care for yourself. Right. Which is like, even me saying that I'm like, well, that sounds silly. And also how often in so many different ways do we not do that because of anything that we've internalized about why we don't deserve it or why we haven't earned it or any of those types of things. Like, I think that's very real. I also think, um, that what you said about not treating like loving your body, whatever that looks like as a destination or as like the end goal, I think is, is interesting because I think, um, 
that seems to be the end goal of a lot of the mainstream body positivity movement. This idea of like individual self-love, which certainly isn't a bad thing. Like, awesome. Sure. Love your body. But like, I feel like, I don't know what if that was removed from the conversation? Like what would it look like? What would body positivity or fat liberation look like if it wasn't about whether or not each individual person could get to this like glorious end point of loving their bodies, right? Like I think it changes the conversation. Yeah, I definitely agree, which is why like I thought it was important and I didn't want to, yeah, I wanted to like talk about it because I felt like, I think especially like people are feeling like, when I get invited for situations like this and, you know, like you said, like we're not looking for like the answer, but I also felt like a lot of pressure to have the answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I don't. So like whenever I would like, there are moments when I would be like pointed to as some sort of example and feeling like, Oh my God, like I am having such a hard day. Like this feels somehow insincere or something, you know? Um, And so I wanted to like, just point to it felt important as somebody who like sometimes gets looked to as an example to like name that like I also don't have shit together or figured out and like I'm still like working through my own things well yeah I mean but I think that the that level of honesty is really powerful because it's not helpful when we just become like caricatures of ourselves right of like yeah like this is this person who has like x y and z things all figured out and like look what like a a good fill in the blank they are right like a I, I yeah. know a, like I think about that too like a, a good wife a good this a good whatever like okay like that's not helpful right so to be able mm-hmm. to be able to like hold the dichotomy or hold the space for like both are true like that these are things that I struggle with and also this is something that I believe in and like those can both exist it's not like one or the other yes mm-hmm. what are some shifts and changes that you'd love to see in the like body positivity movement, or we can even use different words if those don't feel resonant. Yeah, that's a great um, question. I still feel like a lot of, I still feel like there isn't as much like size and race diversity as there should be mm-hmm. and as there can be. Um, I feel like a lot of times yeah, even whenever I see, like, campaigns about body positivity or fat activists, I, like, feel like a lot of the people that I see are smaller than, like, smaller fat people than even I am. And I think that we can do more to talk about bigger fat people and to show them and uplift them. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, because, like, they're the, they're the most severe targets of, of everything, around fat phobia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like that too. I also feel like, and I don't know what this would look like. And obviously there are folks that are doing great work in this regard. I would love to see the conversation sort of shifting away from that, like individual self-love and more on like, I don't know, like access to resources and like, th- like things that really have nothing to do with whether an individual person like loves their body or not. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how that happens, but that's just something that I've been thinking about, like that it's so easy on Instagram to have like to hashtag things. Right. And like, have yeah. it be about like loving your body, but it's like, what is this movement really about? Yeah. But it's like, yeah, I think you're, it's so important. What you're saying is so important. Cause it's like, it's so much easier to love your body whenever like 
all your needs are being met, <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> yeah. you can afford like the like a haircut that feels good for you and that product that feels that like makes you feel really good um, and clothes that make you feel really good. Like it's so, it's so much easier to, to do that when you can do that. And then like, but what if you can't? And like, again, like, do you still like deserve to be a person? <laughs> like, do you still deserve to have like a positive experience in the world, even if you don't love your body? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, like the, the intersection of all of that with money, with capitalism, like that also can't be ignored. Like everything you just said, right? Like yeah. that it's being like having the, the wealth or a financial privilege to be able to that still, because then still it's like doing the things that make you feel good. Awesome. And also the ability then to tick some of the boxes of those like social conventions of, okay, sure. Maybe my body's a different size, but also look, I'm playing by all of these other rules and that there is acceptance that comes from that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I know that we've covered a, bu- a bunch of different things. Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed yet that you wanted to bring up or anything else that's on your mind that you would love to share? Um, oh my gosh. I feel like we covered so much. I think we got it all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then something that I want to ask you before we start to wrap up, when you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? Oh, wow. It's really nice to have many responses to that question (laughs) or like have many things to choose from. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think the biggest thing probably is the completion of the first draft of a book that I'm writing with three other people and we're expecting to have it published in um, February. And so I'm, we're like working on writing it now. Um, And so when that is out, that will be really cool. What can you tell me a little bit about what the book's about? Because that's exciting. Sure. It's called um, Body Sovereignty, Fat Politics, and the Fight for Human Rights. Um, And it's me and two JDs and a social worker. Um, And so it's kind of like a broad, like, cultural, legal policy look at fatness um, in the United States today. And I think it'll be really cool and really exciting. Well, I I will be the first in line to pre-order that book. So yeah, that's totally exciting. Um, So the way that we wrap up these episodes are with some random rapid fire questions. Essentially, it's seven questions that all eight guests of this season are going to be answering if you are down to answer seven random questions. Yes. So the first question is about money. So when it Mm -hmm. comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully do? don't spend much money on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that when you can is a totally worthwhile splurge for you? Um, One thing I hate spending money on, I feel morally opposed to paying for is parking. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good answer. Oh my God. I get so angry about being asked to pay for parking. So there's that. And then the thing that I definitely feel like is worth every penny is probably food mm-hmm. um and that means like having like not just having what you want but like if you could get it delivered that is like 
Oh my God. That's like the height of luxury. Yeah. No, (laughs) (laughs) a couple weeks ago, my husband and I were at the grocery store and, um, (laughs) he, we were, I don't know, just like buying regular groceries and he like picks up this, this bag of vegan marshmallows. We're mostly vegan. And he was like, they're like, whatever, like five or $6 a bag, like something gratuitous for a bag of marshmallows. And he was like, this is what abundance looks like. I'm going to get two bags of these marshmallows. I was like, yeah, listen, I'm here for that. That's great. Um, the next question, what's one thing that you really love about yourself? Um, that is a great question. I would say my humor. Um, I think I'm very funny. (laughs) Such a good answer. Um, what's a recent shift or decision that you made that you feel like has had a big impact in your life? Uh, um, like intense but I'm I would like what's coming up for me is therapy is like choosing to start therapy um and like just how generative that has been hell yeah I went back to therapy after a long time of not going last started last July and I'm like oh right when you actually find the right person who's the right fit and commit yourself to being like so honest that you want to crawl out of your skin and die therapy works oh my god like, yeah. surprising yeah. yeah so I like leave there and I'm like oh my god I'm so raw every week and I'm like also this is amazing so yes <laughs> so good that's my if I were like insanely rich and, or like my Oprah thing would be like, you get therapy and you get therapy. Like, I want to pay for everybody yes. to go to therapy. <laughs> I'm like, I just really want everyone to be in therapy yeah. all the time. Same, 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 same. Um, looking back, what's one decision in your life that at the time that you were making it felt really hard to make? I think probably the decision to, yeah, I think like the decision between choosing myself over people that I love um, mm. and like making the the decision that like these relationships are actually no longer working for me as much as I love somebody. Yeah. We could have a whole conversation just about that topic. That's like a good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies, something you would love to do or experience or just if anything's on the table, what would you love? What's a bucket list thing for you? Um, I really want to have the financial resources to have all of my needs met. (laughs) This is, that is my like wildest fantasy. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's a great one. (laughs) I mean, like right now I need like, I'm having so many like dental problems and my car is breaking down and I'm just like, if I can just like have enough money where I can like afford a car that isn't breaking down and I can afford all the dental work that I need, like that would be something. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm here for that. Yes. Uh, the next question is about books, um, which let's say two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Um, excellent question. Okay. So the bit, and I feel like I'm like such a nerd that these things are going to be like really academic. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's just my response. Yeah, yeah no, go uh, for it. Go for it. Anything that comes to mind for you is what I want. Okay, great. Um, the first one would be this book called Spaces Between Us, Indigenous um, Decolonization and Queer Settler Colonialism by Scott Morganson. That's a mouthful of a title. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's pretty dense. It's kind of difficult to make it through, but um, it's been really 
informative about like how I think about queer identity and sexuality in the context of colonialism in the United States as a non-Indigenous person, especially. Um, that one, I would say, I'm going to choose a poem for one, which is A Litany for Survival by Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. which just like, yeah, absolutely changed my life. And the thing, maybe something that I reread the most, um, also Audre Lorde, <laughs> probably Sister Outsider. Yeah. Um, her essay collection. Yeah, I'm going to put links to all those in the show notes. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Yeah, let me, I have something I'm trying to give how to word it. I would say to let yourself, let your body have and do and be what it needs to be and to be okay with that. And to like, eat what you want and move the ways that you want and like let your body be what it wants to be and not feel sad or ashamed or insecure about it as just like try to let that be what it is. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online. Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, yeah, so I use Instagram a lot. My Instagram handle is chairbreaker. And you can also find me on my website, which is caleb-luna.com. Um, and there's a contact, there's a link to all my writings um, and a contact form there as well. Awesome. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes. Caleb, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Steph. Hi, Steph. Hey, Nicole. You ready to answer five random questions? I think I am. (laughs) You're like, I think so, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's the morning, but I'm ready. I know, right? First thing in the morning on Skype, answer questions about your life. It's amazing. Um, So my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Well, this is a super only suddenly became suddenly obsessed with it thing, but I went a little bit extreme on it. Um, I've thought for a long time that I had this super original idea to make a new Instagram account called, well, I don't know what I would call it, but photos of places that used to be pizza huts. Like, you know, when you're in any town and those like distinctive buildings that have turned into like a medical clinic, but it very obviously used to be a pizza hut. Um, I had this idea that I was going to create an Instagram account and post photos of places that used to be Pizza Hut, but it turns out I am not the first person to have that idea. There's a case-bound book that's been published in Australia full of Pizza Huts that have been turned into funny buildings, and there's a whole blog about it and articles on the internet. So I was really excited about my idea, and then I was really excited about everybody else's idea, and now I'm just sad that it wasn't my original idea. That's the most random funny thing. Like, I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but it definitely wasn't I know. That. I went so hard on it on Friday. Everybody in my office, like I was talking to different people and they're like, 
what, what? And people kept joining into the conversation. I'm like, I know it's random, but I've just never vocalized this. I've been thinking about it for a long time because it just entertains me so much when you see these buildings that are obviously like have the architecture of Pizza Huts and they're no longer. That's hilarious. Oh my God, I don't even know where we go from here. I'm just going to ask you the next question. It'll be, it'll, be, it'll be less random, I promise. No, that's amazing. I literally, the second we get off Skype, I'm going to go to the Googles and figure this out because that's amazing. <laughs> You're um, going to be shocked. So totally a different topic. What's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like an area of your life or a particular thing that you're currently finding challenging? Um, I am finding challenging... I used to be, uh, I might spoil one of the later questions. I don't know if you're going to ask it, but the version of like, what's your like shiniest specialist version of yourself? I don't feel like I'm that version of myself as often as I used to be. Um, So I'm sort of exploring and trying to figure out what that is. Um, I feel like I used to, I guess a few years ago when I was in university and kind of just doing my own thing, being really super independent, I felt I don't know, like a rock star. And I was really confident in myself and had all these things going on. And now I only get glimpses of that person. I'm still great. And I'm still like, by no means am I like sad and mopey about anything, but I just don't feel like I'm like that brightest, shiniest version of myself as often anymore. Um, and I'm frustrated trying to figure out how to get back there. Yeah. That's a really honest answer. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into or something that a lot of other people seem to prioritize that you don't really care about? Um, generally, be a lot of pop culture. Like, I like watching movies and listening to music, but when people are like, oh, so-and-so, they got married to so-and-so. I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> like, so-and-so from this movie. I'm like, I don't know who that is. Like, my brain just has no interest in retaining, except for, like, the most famous actors, but even now people are like, they are the most famous. I'm like, uh, no, I got nothing. Like, I don't know. It just is not, my brain's not into that for the most part. Totally. And I don't, whereas other people are like 10 out of 10 knows everybody who, and or like when a song comes on they're like, who sings this? I'm like, I don't know. I know the word to the song, but I don't know who sings it. Totally. I don't I know. know who There's they're married to. So many songs like that. I feel the same way. Um, what would you say is your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship or just like one of your relationships that is really strong? What do you do well in that relationship? Oh, wow. What a good question. I would say being open and honest, and this might be something that I've sort of learned from your podcast. Um, is just being a little bit more straightforward, not being blunt necessarily, but just not being afraid to ask a little bit deeper questions or ask like, why do you think you feel that way? Instead of just being like, oh, okay. And avoiding it. You know, when someone's talking to you some- about something that they're uncomfortable with, I would normally default to just be like, okay. So anyways, like, what do you, what do you want to do for dinner versus digging a little bit deeper and letting them open up? Um, and then also, I try to reciprocate by just, yeah, giving all the details instead of avoiding details that um, might be, I don't know, a little bit embarrassing or vulnerable and just kind of putting it all out on the table so that people feel comfortable and seen and understood and that, I don't know, we're all, go- we're all going through hard things mm-hmm. and making it not like this big secret that sometimes everybody has bad days. So that sort of leads into the last question. What's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Uh, their 
relationships. And I don't exactly know how this would work. Um, cause it's not like, I think that everybody should like dump all their crap on Facebook and talk about how they like fought with their husband this morning. But I think that people do a lot of rah, rah, rah. We're so happy. Like here's these professional photos that we just got done. But when realistically you actually know that they like fight all the time or they're struggling about this or I don't know. I think people just put on this like front. So it's not that I need them to necessarily be more honest because I totally respect other people's privacy, but I wish they didn't try to like swing the pendulum the other way. Like we all have tough times or crap or I don't know. Our relationships aren't these laughing, giggling, perfect professional photos all the time or Instagram stories all the time. Um, don't just give your highlight reel without a bit more honesty on the other side. Yeah. I think the one thing that I'll say to that, I have been really lately wishing, um, that people weren't only honest at the extremes. Like I think that people are more comfortable being honest when things are really bad, right. Whether that's in a relationship Mm -hmm. or otherwise, or when they're really good. And it's the stuff in between that I think is what most people live and experience. It can be true that if we're talking about like a romantic relationship, right. Like that you and your partner are having a maybe tough time on one issue, but otherwise you are happy and things are really good, right. That it's like both can be true at the same time. And I wish that people were more honest about that type of thing. Um, just sort of like the day to day of like what it is to be in like a close relationship with somebody. Yeah, exactly. Cause I think we just have all these false ideas of what everybody else's life is going through. So then when things aren't perfect in your life or when they're really good in your life, you're like, is it weird if I talk about it? Is it Yeah, exactly. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show and then what you love most about being in our community. Um, Really, I just think the content is so good. Like I try to listen to other podcasts um, and there's no other podcast that I listen to that I'm like, wow, this is really good. I would pay money for it. You know, like <laughs> if it, if it wasn't available, like I pay like for Google play music and Apple music, like I pay money so that there's not ads. And because I don't want them to go away. Like I like them being, I don't know. I like them being mine and in my control. And I kind of feel like that's what this having this podcast is. I'm like, I don't want it to go away. And the content is so good it just, I pay money for everything else that I like in my life. Like I pay money for coffee. That's so good. I pay money for, I don't know, new workout pants that are so good. So why wouldn't I pay money for a podcast that I appreciate just as much as new yoga pants or coffee or whatever it is. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) And, And what do I like most? I think I just like the podcast episodes most. I mean, I appreciate all of the other things, but I love the extra episodes, um, like your conversations with Julia every month. And, um, you sent out one recently, the one with Evian. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Just, yeah. Kind of the carry on of the, all of your voice having conversations with people. I appreciate, I really like the emails too. And yeah, I don't know. The whole thing's pretty great, but I just think, (laughs) I just think very much so that it's the, just the seasons that come out every month, I would never want them to stop or I would never want you to be like, I can only do this twice a year because, or that, I don't know. I would just never want that to change. So I'm like, here, 
have some of my coffee money. Well, I appreciate that. Um, last thing I'll ask you to share is where you live and maybe a social media link or something if people want to reach out. Yeah, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, and my Instagram is at Perstephanie underscore P-E-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E underscore. Well, thanks. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be a lot of fun. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 